Hello, you, and welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Today, we're talking about 500 Days of Summer. I'm one of your hosts, Alex Steed, and I will soon be joined by my marvelous co-host, Sarah Marshall. You Are Good is a podcast in which we, uh, often with a guest, sometimes not, talk about a movie and then we unpack the feelings that it brings out in us or the various kind of human experiences the movie represents and uh, what our experiences have been in that arena. It's not criticism. It's uh, using a movie as a lens to understand a little bit better what it is like to be a person who is alive in the world. (laughs) 500 Days of Summer is a 2009 American romantic comedy film. It stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Zoe Deschanel and employs a nonlinear structure. And the story is based upon its male protagonist and his memories of a failed relationship. We picked this one because uh, we are in and around Valentine's Day and we sort of threw out a handful of titles that people talk about with regard to sort of interesting takes on romantic endeavors. This one came up. I had never seen it before. And, uh, you know, we often talk about movies where we're talking about someone's like favorite movie and why it's their favorite and what it speaks to in and with them. And in this case, I don't know that this is either of our favorite movie, (laughs) but it certainly provided an interesting launchpad for talking about all sorts of things that are both represented in the movie and uh, sort of, you know, human tendencies, let's say. (laughs) So we had a good time with this one. I hope that you enjoy it. Tony is walking into the room. Tony, the cat, just pushed the door open. He's making his entrance. What are you doing? How are you feeling? What's going on in your life? What's going on in your head? What's going on in your heart? What's going on in your world? Let us know. We'd love to hear about it. Uh, you can find us at You Are Good or You Are Good Pod, depending on which social media platform you're trying to find us on. Okay, Tony is now up on my lap, just in case you're wondering. Uh, we, what was that? Tony. (laughs) We make videos that uh, pop up on reels whenever I uh, have it in me to post them. Our great friend Alyssa Onofrio edits those for us. And we um, are also posting those over on TikTok. So you can find us in all sorts of places. Let us know how you're doing. Let us know what's going on. And don't forget that you, my friend, are good. You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies is made possible with and by your support. Thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and Apple podcast subscriptions. You make the show possible. And in exchange, you get bonus episodes. Last month, we had a bonus episode about Barbie. So thanks, really, thank you for helping support the show in this way. It makes this all possible. It helps us all uh, pay our bills. And uh, if we weren't able to do that, there'd be no show. So thank you for supporting us. If you, like me, are looking to participate in actions calling for ceasefire, uh, you can probably find some that are happening in and around your neighborhood by way of the folks at Jewish Voice for Peace. Or if you want to make a contribution, you can make a contribution to the Palestinian Children's Relief Fund. We'll have links for where to find those folks or make those contributions in the show notes. All right. I think that's it for uh, this introduction to 500 Days of Summer. Let's get into it, shall we? (sighs) 
Hello, Sarah Marshall. I love the Smiths, Alex Steed. Oh, that's good. That's great. That's good for you. That's how hipster types like to greet each other. <laughs> that's good for Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I, um, what is Joseph Gordon-Levitt's accent? Do we know? Does he have an accent? Yeah, he has like a big, it's not, it's an American, it's like an American regional accent. I don't know. Can't get to the bottom of this. I've never noticed a Joseph Gordon-Levitt accent problem. I have to say my favorite work of his yesterday, today, and tomorrow is uh, Tommy Solomon on Third Rock from the Sun. A real classic. A show about neurodivergency, better than anyone that Hollywood has attempted to panderingly make. This podcast family member, Carolyn Kendrick, is also a gigantic Third Rock from the Sun fan. I can't believe I didn't know that. It's the best show. All the best people. Anyway, we are talking about 500 Days of Summer, which I feel like is a movie that gets requested a lot. Is it by people who are like, hey, I used to really love this and now I want to hear you rip it a new one because that's what I'm going to do. So you've been warned. This is like the voice at the start of the Pirates of the Caribbean. I don't know who is requesting it and for what reason, but I know it's come up before. It better not be skinny nerds who live in downtown LA. I think it comes up because it's like one of the only movies i've never seen this before today Mm. but i think it's one of the only popular movies i know about where there is levity Mm. joseph gordon levity there's joseph gordon levity but also it resolves the fact that sometimes you don't end up with the person who you believe is the love of your life yeah and there aren't that many movies that do that and it speaks to how few there are that one of the first I think of when I try and think of examples is (laughs) this movie called Sci Fighters starring (laughs) Rowdy Roddy Piper where it's the future and there's a prison colony on the moon and this guy who I thought at the time looked like Bob from Twin Peaks he wasn't he was another guy escapes from the prison colony and Roddy Piper who was not in enough movies has to track him down. And he has all this sexual tension with this lady future doctor. And then at the end, you think something's going to happen and they're both just awkwardly like, well, see you around. And then that's the (laughs) end. And it was such a radical choice. I've remembered it for 22 years. It's that movie and this movie. I can't think of others. And I can't think of others that aren't like dour indie movies. Right. There's The Bridges of Madison County, which is not a dour indie movie, but is like a 90s. Have you seen The Bridges of Madison County? No. I feel like I must have told this story on the show before or somewhere. But okay, The Bridges of Madison County filmed, I think, in the mid 90s. It was based on a novel that was like this huge bestseller of the kind where critics were like, I hate it. I don't understand what's happening. I don't know what's wrong with people. Because like the writing is in that like Fifty Shades kind of way, like bad, Mm -hmm. right? Like there's a lot of crap that's well written in its own way. Like Jacqueline Suzanne really could cut a rug, for example. But like, this is just like minimal effort, bad writing. Iowa farm wife falls in love with a traveling photographer. They have four days together and then he leaves. And then when they die, they want their ashes to be scattered by the bridges of Madison County and Madison County, Iowa. It is like Brokeback Mountain (laughs) shit. 
Oh no. That's a real, that's a real Brokeback Mountain movie. But because it's about straight people, you're like, huh. And the, yeah. the movie is much better than the book. It's one of those examples of the writing being so bad. You're like, well, I don't feel any pressure to preserve any of this majesty. I'm just going to write a script. And that's like, it was this cultural phenomenon. And so it was filmed mostly in Winterset, Iowa, which is about an hour or less away from Des Moines. So my family oh my there God. still talk about it <laughs> and know people who have bit parts. Yeah, we have that, this, La La Land. I think these are the movies. Um, have you, had you seen this movie before? What's your relationship with it? Yeah, no, I saw I saw this movie when it was out roughly and it was... I would argue that this was a movie. This came out in 2009. And so the timing was perfect for it to just be all over Tumblr. Oh, sure. Like a winsome little rash. And that was my experience because I was on cute girl stuff Tumblr. So you can imagine. Yes. No, that makes total sense. I can see in my mind at least 20 GIFs cut from this. Exactly. GIF sets. I can see Joseph Gordon-Levitt dancing or, or yep. sort of walking with Pep, like because he just had sexual intercourse. Hey, he, he there was a long take. <laughs> Good for him. Long take shot far away. Very minimal editing in that dance number. <laughs> I was very under the impression that this movie was a musical. And then it turns out that it's not. I also, prior, we started talking about this movie because it was made clear at some point in conversation with you that I had no idea that this was in reference to someone's name. So I found it very perplexing. But I think it's a great testament to how annoying and contrived this movie is that you're like, wait, it's called that because it's about a girl named Summer and it's 500 days of her. Which is, I think, barely excusable and then becomes wholly unexcusable in the last scene of the movie. <laughs> yes. And then you're like, oh, but to an extent that it's almost like Carrie Elway's showing up at the end of Saw 7 where you're sure. like, wow, I, I feel something for once. <laughs> but in this case, it's Lila Garrity from Friday Night Lights. <laughs> yeah. Who I thought for a second was Blair from Gossip Girl when I saw her from the back and I heard her voice. And then I was like, no. It's Texas Blair. Wouldn't that be incredible? It, it, oh, you know what would save this movie is if it just was Blair Waldorf. It's just it's finally getting a job. She's actually infiltrating a corporation so she can take down <laughs> Chuck Bass's corporation. And so he's going to become a pawn and she's going to ruin his life completely. <laughs> We were not blessed with this, unfortunately. What, so what is this? I think this is an interesting one to do a plot summary for because it is out of sync or what is it called? Non-chronological, non-linear? No, oh, whatever. <laughs> what, is, uh, what is this movie about, Sarah Marshall? First of all, I just want to mention and put a pin in the idea that I think we should write a bunch of screenplays about what movies what we thought certain movies would be like. Cause I think that like my version in my head that I had of diner oh, sure. would be a pretty good movie, for example. Yes. Yeah. So 500 days of summer is told out of sequence, which, you know, there was a big kind of vogue for after Pulp Fiction. And then it just became mm -hmm. part of a filmmaking style. And I would argue that what has happened by the story being told out of sequence here is a kind of go play whip aeration effect where there seems to be more plot than there is. Yeah. I don't mean that as a negative because a lot of movies have too much plot, but basically what happens if we were to put it all in sequence is that Joseph Gordon-Levitt is, this is a very downtown LA movie in a way I can't think of having seen before. Yeah. You don't see these. This doesn't happen often. And it's actually got a lot of the locations from Los Angeles plays itself, which makes me wish that 
the timeline had worked out where we could hear that guy being like, <laughs> when Joseph Gordon-Levitt meets Zoe Deschanel at the former <laughs> site of the Angels Rest Railway, they certainly don't spare a thought for the lost working class neighborhood that was... <laughs> that's, a, that's a beautiful, <laughs> deep cut uh, voiceover reference to a very specific film. <laughs> so there... <laughs> That's for, that's for that's for the real ones, yeah. For all and, you, Los Angeles plays itself heads out there. But also, <laughs> like, just to skip to a big reveal, I have when they go to Summer's apartment, like, just in the stairwell on the hallways, I was like, that looks exactly like Alex's building. Oh yeah. And yeah. I was like, is that his building? And I looked it up, and it's not, but it's very close to it. It's across the street from you. Yeah. You live across the street from Summer. There are five or six buildings that were all constructed around the same time by the same, I think, firm. Hmm. And they all have kind of the same, a similar-ish interior. And they're all, they're all at this point owned by the same company. Isn't it weird to see your house in a movie? It is. I'm going to see it in Rush Hour 4 if I see Rush Hour 4. <laughs> oh, I, we're going to see Rush Hour 4 together, so you definitely <laughs> will. So the plot is that, yeah, it's, it's Joseph Gordon-Levitt, whose name is Tom or something, is working at a greeting card company under the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. guy and yes. Summer, played by Zoe Deschanel, gets a job there as the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.'s assistant. We also have had like an opening credit sequence where we have first we have our fake white Morgan Freeman adjacent narrator, mm -hmm. which I don't know what I think about. And then an opening sequence of the main characters as kids shot on Super 8 in a way that makes it feel like they grew up in the 60s. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's like a it's like the opening of um, The Wonder Years. It is like that. And also it's amazing <laughs> because like there are moments in this movie that are like so of 2009 that really challenge my kind of belief that there is no flavor to 2009, but there is. And it's opening credits kicking in. And then you're like, oh, shit, this is a Regina Spector song. <laughs> That's what 2009 is. <laughs> I think, are there several Regina Spector songs in this movie? Probably. Yeah, I was like, wow, this is so much more Regina Spector than I've had in my life in a very long time. I know. It's a real, it's a, the music I think is one of the best parts, regardless of whether you, you love this music or not, it takes you to a time. I had a, uh, an online version of a print zine that I had in the mid aughts where Katie Diamond, who's now a tattooist, I think in LA, animated a little story to a Regina Spector song. If you were wondering what the mid-aughts was like, that was it. That's what was going on. That was what the cool girls were doing, frankly. So they both work at the Clark Gregg greeting card company. They meet Joseph Gordon-Levitt is like, I'm so into her, obviously, because this is also Zoe Deschanel at arguably the height of her cuteness. A little, a little too high. Is New Girl out yet when this comes out? No, New Girl came out in like 2013 or something. This is where she enters the scene as Zoe Deschanel. I know she was already an elf and I know she was singing songs, but... Yes, this is when she became a brand in a Got way it. that people knew what to do with. I missed it entirely. Mm. What were you doing in 2009? Did you have a life or a job or a family or something? I was like a peak dirtbag. Like I was at... <laughs> the height of my dirtbag powers. I was the age of an adult, but I was not yet an adult. I didn't know how to shake a hand and look in an eye and mean it. <laughs> 
it's a dumb ritual when you get right down to it. <laughs> I hadn't yet known how to show up for anything in a real way. But also, like, I, I'm old enough where when Zoe Deschanel came around, she was already the recycling of not not she wasn't but like she was being sold as you know this like twee hipster artifact which is kind of like you know our culture is not for sale but it is very for sale i was like this is not for me this is like my culture has been packaged and sold to other people as zoe digital <laughs> so it was never like for me and i i found new girl later in reruns and i have enjoyed it and it's very funny but like that was never for me that was like of me Right. And there was like when somebody is branded to that extent, things do get weird. But it is, I think, a completely separate issue and worth noting that I was a complete bitch about Zoe Deschanel at this point in history. And I realize now watching it that like in short order, this is a movie about a man who meets a woman. They're both very attractive. They have complimentary genitalia. <laughs> He's an Audi. She's an any famously. They're both into that sort of thing. <laughs> He's totally enchanted by her. They start a relationship and they have the movie has to explain that it's because her parents got divorced. She's like, I don't want to have anything serious. I don't want to be anyone's girlfriend. Like, we should just have fun and like, let's have a casual thing. And so I think part of my resentment was just like women who are told they are hot and women who are told they are not hot are kept in silos for our entire lives so that we don't ever get on the same team and take down men. I fully <laughs> believe that. Mm -hmm. And I think that what this movie felt like an example of was that like, as a woman, you have to have a certain kind of physical presence in order for a man or anyone to be infatuated by you and love you. And if you're not hot, then there's no hope for you and you're going to die. <laughs> And so she was like an unlikely symbol of this. And I was like, Zoe, I trusted you. You were an almost famous. Right. They even have like, it's like a three minute. It might, it might be less than three minutes, but it feels like three minutes narratively are devoted to saying specifically and exactly that. It feels long. And they're also like, she's an av the average weight, 121 pounds. And you're like, what are you doing? I gasped. Yeah, it's gasp worthy. When they said, I was like, oh my God, this is like, you know, and you, you'll occasionally now on, on wh whatever social media sites are popular, see screen grabs from you know, fashion magazines from like the aughts where they talk about like what their view of a plus size is. And it's like saying the average rate weight is 120 or whatever they said in this movie. Yeah, I'm by any American standard, like unless I'm in the throes of a very active eating disorder, I'm just disgusting, you know, <laughs> and there's just nothing to be done about that. And so we can't take it out on Zoe, but that's what I did. And right. And I, I want to be clear, too, because you've done a great job of being clear. None of my shit has been with Zoe. Zoe has never heard a fly unless she has, but this movie does not give us evidence of that. Right. You guys will let us know, I'm sure. But my issue is like how she was eventually packaged and what opportunities she was given. Because I know mm -hmm. like often you don't end up in a bunch of stuff because you had the pick of the opportunities. Like she didn't have that until she was like five years into producing that show. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, so like often the things yeah. that people show up for isn't because they're like, this is part of my plan of what my image is going to be. It's like you show up for the opportunities that are presented to you. No. Yeah. That's how she was kind of shaped over time. I think there are like four women in history who've decided what their image should be. And they're incredibly famous because of that. We're, we <laughs> yeah. don't know what to do with it. It's like Cher, Elizabeth the first Dolly. 
Dolly Parton and Billie Jean King. That's great. It's probably it. Um, (laughs) And so basically what it seems to me, actually, it's pretty simple. They start this relationship and he's like, she says she wants a casual relationship, but she's acting like she wants a more serious relationship. And that's what I'm going to assume is happening. What I thought was illustrated interestingly here, not necessarily on purpose. I don't think that it was on purpose, but he's wrong the whole time. He's bad the whole time. And it's it's eventually evidence and illustrated in a very fun way when he's on a date who just repeats to him the facts of the thing that he was in prior. And his take is she did him wrong, but in fact, she was very clear. But I also, I'm not justifying his behavior. Her refusal to talk about boundaries or expectations did not do her any favors. Mm-hmm. She, she she operates on an engine of whimsy. She's like, we just, it's just, let's not call it anything. Let's not like. Let's not worry about it. As you know, conversations about relationships were invented in 2012. Yeah, totally. It's like, unless you read the ethical slot, there wasn't any conversations about relationships or sort of expectations. Right. Only the most annoying kilt wearing poly people <laughs> were talking about boundaries proactively at this time. If you're Polly and you have a kilt, I love you. I love you. <laughs> Last week, there was Polly discourse because there was a um, magazine article. It doesn't matter what the discourse was, but anytime. No, I want to know. I want to get a little slow drip of internet poison into my veins. It was just like, I think like the cut or New York magazine did a like sort of like a primer about like different kinds and like whatever. And it really felt like a, these are profiles of like the upper echelon Brooklyn Mm. kind of folks so it's like a rich people bad article pretending to be a poly people bad article exactly and i think that there's something that's interesting there to unpack which is like who actually has time and it is often that's why you always hear it in the context of brooklyn and the bay area it's like who has wealth and who has time to maintain tactfully like what that's neither here nor there i guess my plan is to have an arrangement where i live with like five other women and we tend to our homestead and there's very little sex and we raise like two kids. This is what um, Eve Babbitt's talked about wanting all the time. Oh, good. Who I think if there's any Eve you haven't read, you will love. But she talks very lovingly about that vision. But anyway, the reason I brought it up is that I always think it's an interesting reveal when people get because I actually have no set relationship preference. Mm. I'm not like this thing or this thing. It's like, I think you show up for what the needs are of the relationship. You figure it out, like whatever. But when I see people get anxious because they're like, I could never like do whatever. First of all, no one's asking. (laughs) Unless the article was called, could you ever do this? (laughs) Exactly. Like, comment and subscribe. (laughs) Second of all, what I usually see as a tell when people get sort of anxious about the idea about poly, anything open to anything is they're freaked out by any expectation of communication, period. Hmm. Like they're like, oh, you have to like talk about shit and like revisit the same conversation (laughs) occasionally or whatever. It's like, yeah, you have to do that in every relationship. And like people in monogamous relationships should be communicating also. Yeah. We we just have been able to coast for much of uh, American history, I guess. Yes. And that and I was reminded of that when. Yes, Joseph Gordon is wrong. No, I am not defending Joseph Gordon-Levitt as this character. At the same time, you can't just show up and be like, let's just not call it anything, but keep showing up like it's a thing and refuse Mm -hmm. to talk about it. (laughs) 
<laughs> right. I mean, you can, but you're going to get some real mixed results. Well, and also there's the issue of like, if it looks like a girlfriend, it, I'm trying to make like a John Deere joke, I which like I don't even doing. know who my, right. But like, if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, <laughs> it's probably a duck. Right. <laughs> and I, I, there are a number of things that I do like that were illustrated. Like, I like that this movie could just be a tutorial and like sort of Zen detachment 101 or Zen, like sort of like separation of attachments 101. Cause like his whole thing is he is attached to a specific idea or ideal and outcome Mm -hmm. and constantly gets hurt because he is failing himself because those attachments don't match up to the reality. And also it's not surprising that there's a lot of overlap between that and like, you know, anonymous programs because like his desire to have very specific and particular outcomes lead to nothing but disappointment and hurt. And then he ends up just fucking like drinking himself through several weeks. So I do like that we saw that represented in a fun way. Yeah. And it's just a relationship where there's not very much communication. They meet and on, you know, they get together. And then on the 280th day of summer, which is like just about halfway. So a little shy of 10 months. So after that long, they go to a diner. And this is like, I've always remembered this is something I feel like it does really well, where like their food comes out like as she's breaking up with him. Mm-hmm. And it looks so dry and unappetizing. It's just like the feeling of it feel it's great. Yeah. And she's like, we should break up. Lately, we've been like Sid and Nancy. And he's like, Sid Vicious stabbed Nancy seven times. We're not Sid and Nancy. And she's like, no, I'm Sid. You're Nancy. (laughs) Which is a good joke, but I don't really understand what she's saying, honestly. Like, it sounds good, but it's like, what's your point? My take on the joke was that he thought that he was the star. Like, he's like assuming that he is Sid. And Mm -hmm. she's like, no, like, I'm the star. And I thought that it was very funny as a result. And he was like, oh, I'm just Nancy. Like, <laughs> it's like. Come on. Which there is no just Nancy. It's a privilege to be Nancy. <laughs> I'm the Mary. Um, Yeah. And so they break up and out of sequence, we sort of, you know, we open with the breakup and then we go back to them getting together. We sort of flip flop back and forth. Joseph Gordon-Levitt has in his corner his friend from work, Matthew Gray Goobler from Criminal Minds, or as my mom calls him, Haircut. Okay. (laughs) And he also has this like freelance child who's always dropping everything to give him relationship advice. Like, who is this kid? It's his young half-sister. Okay. But I don't know like how or why she shows up a lot. Like, how is she getting to him? Well, the opening shows her like riding her bike through the streets at night to get to his apartment in downtown L.A. And I'm not an expert on big cities, but I was like, girl, the motorists actually try to kill people on bikes in L.A. You don't want to do that for sure. Yeah, she was. I I enjoyed her. I thought that she was a fun addition. I just never really cared about her character because she just kept showing up right away. Well, it's just so funny that like this, she keeps dropping everything to help out this adult moron and <laughs> he never asks her about her life. You know, right. he, he doesn't help her with any of the stuff she's going through. And I would love if at some point she was like, Tom, I'm 11. I have a lot going on right now. Well, she does at some point drop something that it suggests that she's had several boyfriends lately and you can mm-hmm. see him, his interest peaked. But he is so, and I don't know if this was the intention, but like he is so 
self-absorbed that he has to your point no interest in any details about her life right and you know and she's a child it must be pointed out so he actually is supposed to be more interested in her life than she is in his stupid life (laughs) yeah and it's also fun and illustrative of the fact that an 11 year old seems to know more than he does in any one of these circumstances or situations which is not surprising because ultimately like at the end of this like i look forward to talking about the second to last scene where they're on a bench sort of catching up with each other's lives. But, you know, this is ultimately just about a boy who has no sense of emotional maturity yet. He's not a mature person. He is just anxious. And that's all he leads every scene with is like an anxiety about something not being what he expects it to be or what he needs it to be. And so he's like, he shows up, as my father would say, as a weak noodle to every situation. <laughs> he's he's also like, you know, this was the time when um, positive sentiment toward John Krasinski was at an all time peak <laughs> in America. And these phenomena seem related. Yeah, no, I know. I think that that's right. And I bet I mean, it's like, how old do we think he must be in this movie? Like 24, 25, if even. And there's a scene where, and this this scene unfortunately resonated the most with me, particularly at this age. There's a scene where they're at a bar hanging out together, and I think it's like close to the middle of their 500 days when this happens. It's like clo- it's close-ish to the breakup, maybe, or the breakup has. I don't know. I don't know. I actually don't know when this happens. I I stopped keeping track of which days were which, but I, I just sort of like a finance bro basically comes up and starts hitting on Zoe Deschanel's car- on, on summer, and. He's hitting on her. Uh, she's not having it or hearing it. He realizes that Joseph Gordon-Levitt is sort of at the bar with her. He says you know, something negative or whatever, and Joseph Gordon-Levitt punches him in the face. And then the guy comes back and punches him in the face. And we see them later at the apartment sort of talking about it. And he's just like talking about it as a phenomenon and not registering that like as much as we kind of all sometimes want to do that on some level, like just doing it and thinking you're doing it on someone else's behalf is usually not actually what is happening. Like you're usually just like acting Mm -hmm. in service of your own fucking ego. I don't think women really want to ever punch people really. And if we do want to get in a fight with somebody, we're going to go for the eyes. (laughs) We don't showboat around. We're efficient. We get a fight that comes from this because, you know, she is not, stoked in his behavior and he is confused about why she would not be stoked in his behavior yeah what did you make of that oh i mean i guess that that feels like such a classic kind of dispute that happens between men and women and it reminds me of the time on sex in the city when charlotte dated that carrie elways looking guy Mm. there is also as we talked about a bit before the much beloved lone semi-musical number set to I think it's just called You Make My Dreams Come True by Hollow Notes. There's probably mm. some parentheses oh, in yeah, there. Yeah. It's probably yes, parentheses you make. Almost certainly. And then my dreams come true. <laughs> <laughs> which reminds me of the opening number that we had in Get Over It, which was yes. probably my favorite part of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we have the breakup. We get up to speed on that. And then the last act is basically that they go to a, a co-worker's wedding together. They like have some moments. He's like, maybe we're going to get back together. And then she invites him to a party at her 
apartment in beautiful Koreatown and he realizes that she's engaged and she got engaged to somebody right after they broke up, which to be fair, if you're in a relationship with somebody who's like, I just don't want commitment generally, or like, I just don't want a relationship generally. And then they go on to like commit to the next person. That that's one of the worst things that can happen to a human being. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And what I did enjoy about how this comes together is they find themselves on a bench randomly at at a place in the park that he showed her. And she, you know, says that she's loved it since he showed it to her, they catch up and he says, you know, cordially enough, but somewhat disdainfully, I'll never get how you are a person who didn't want to date anyone or to commit anyone. And then you got married because, you know, to your point, he's doing the math and taking it personally. (laughs) And I like that she is just kind of straight up like, I never felt that with you. And it doesn't like mince words. Like, I just never felt that with you. I felt that with this person. And this whole movie at least starts with him trying to convince her that there is some fate to the process of like finding love she's on the opposite position they're now on the bench and he's trying to let himself kind of off the hook by saying you were right there is no fate and she's like you're wrong how do you think i found this person i found this person at exactly the right moment for it to work out with us so there is this kind of element of fate and the fate was for us to break up so i could marry the right person which is like a growth moment that i think happens for most people who have any kind of love life and survive long enough to have some stuff happen, (laughs) you know, like moments where you, you feel like, Oh, maybe it was my purpose to deliver this person or for this relationship to deliver both of us onto the next thing. And like having, you know, you're not born with the maturity to accept that probably you have to grow it somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I I think a lot, I mean, I, I, 40 is a really interesting age because your friends can be, 25 and your friends can be 60 and it's not like a rare thing and it makes me think a lot more about emotional maturity and not just emotional maturity but like the things that we learn as we get more experiences under our belt over time or or not to be honest like a lot of people get a lot of experiences under their belt they don't learn anything or they they sort of refuse to accept any lessons but like I think a lot about what we are disposed to show up for when we haven't gone through a whole lot yet. Oh, yeah. And I would argue that he is a person who we're kind of seeing go through his first thing. Oh, he looks like a Mormon. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, this is kind of one of the first process. And then also just to think that he talks about fate only as long as it's serving him. You know, like at the beginning of the movie, he's like, talking about love and destiny and fate and like how it's a thing or whatever. And because he believes it can still be in service of him, but when it doesn't serve him, the person who he thought was the person, it's no longer a thing when it serves her, but not him, it's no longer a thing to him. And it's, it really kind of shows an interesting relationship that we maintain with our ideas of like destiny and predestiny is like, it's a thing Mm -hmm. as long as it's helping me out. But like, if it's not, it's just like random chaos. (laughs) I think the role of fate in romantic comedies is very interesting because it feels like in sort of secular, you know, late 20th century into 21st century America, the rom-com is one of the only places where we can allow ourselves to think seriously or not seriously, but to think at length about that kind of thing. Right. Because you have like fate is a big theme in, in Sleepless in Seattle. It's like, this is not a big movie, but it's one 
that I really like. Fade is a huge part of the Marissa Tomei rom-com Only You. You remember that one? Oh, yeah. I haven't seen that in a long time, but I'm familiar. I think it's like Marissa Tomei is told by like a Ouija board or something as a child that the man she's going to marry will be named Damon Bradley. And so... (laughs) And so she and her sister-in-law, Bonnie Hunt, are preparing for her wedding to, I forget who, but some kind of like perfectly suitable Bill Pullman type. Mm -hmm. And then she gets a call from like someone about the wedding and he's like, I'm calling from Rome, long distance, blah, blah, blah. My name is Damon Bradley. And she's like, oh my God. And so she and Bonnie Hunt go to Rome Where, while trying to find Damon Bradley, they run into Robert Downey Jr., who's like, I'm Damon Bradley. And she's like, oh, my God. And they have this amazing instant connection. And then it turns out that he's not Damon Bradley. But when she said she was looking for Damon Bradley, he was like me. Right. And it all ends up with Marissa Tomei finding finally at the airport the real Damon Bradley. And he's just like some guy. Yeah. And also her brother, Fisher Stevens, at some point admits to just like putting Damon Bradley on the Ouija board when they were playing with it together because it was the name of like his dorky classmate. So it's like, oh no, there wasn't fate. Oh no, there was fate. And it was just more convoluted than we thought. (laughs) I love, no, I love that. I love that because I was just talking about this in in a much different context, but like, I don't even know how to say this without sounding either like a prick or kind of too woo woo. But like, I, I, for the most part, like I only in conversation, I obviously like hear words and stuff, but I, I often just like only see in symbols and like hear things symbolically. Mm-hmm. Like I hear what people are saying literally. If we're having a conversation, I can hear what you're saying literally. But like I can't help but like sort of like make connections and like hear things and sort of see things and hear things on a symbolic level. It's like what makes kind of like occult arts interesting to me. Mm-hmm. It's like what makes, uh you know, cards interesting. It's like what it makes all of that stuff interesting to me. And, and usually in like more chaotic times in my life, I, I am able to see those things a little more acutely. And I think it, it helps give me um feeling a little more stable. Yeah. And I bring that up in particular because I think one can get tripped up on the meaning and inevitability about those symbols mm. is it particularly like with tarot or like that that example that you just you just said with the movie is like a very very funny one is these symbols are like largely meant to like exist to match up the meaning of whatever we have inside of us and find resonance with mm. and then we have to decide how we're going to act and intervene upon mm. that situation yeah you know you don't get like the tower and it means this thing is going to happen have you experienced people being like reluctant to look at tarot cards and let you do a tarot card reading oh, yeah. for them? Yeah, that's happened to me so many times where they're like, but what if it's something bad and that means something bad is going to happen to me? Which is fair as a fear. I'm afraid of everything, but that's not how I choose to look at it, like you're saying. To me, really, sort of the actual takeaway is like, really what's happening is those come up, you see what that resonates with what is going on inside of you, and it helps you see particular parts of your life in greater focus. Mm -hmm. And then it's up to you to decide how you're going to interface with that knowledge. 
Yeah. Like, are you going to run away to Italy? Because then that's where, you know, you can't like sit there waiting for Damon Bradley to just materialize in your living room. I'll tell you that much. Right. Well, and then when you meet Robert Downey Jr., who is not really Damon Bradley, but is working for you, are you going to decide that that's enough? Or are you going to wait for actual Damon Bradley? Like there's some part in which you have to intervene upon your own fate. And like that is, again, I bring this all up because that is how we're left in the movie. Because the other thing that's going on with this guy is he is very capable in one arena, which is like sort of architecture and has like sort of vision around that. And for whatever reason, just he's just doing greeting cards, which I think is totally fine. I think you should show up for what you want to do or show up for the amount of work you want to put in, whatever. But we're led to believe that he's not living up to like what he thinks maybe his potential is. She sees that potential in his behalf, sees that he's not living up to it. It's part of the frustration. He draws a nice skyline on her arm. He, he does. And in the time off from her, he's able to kind of reconcile some of that and actually show up and he starts showing up for jobs. And on his way into a job, he sees Lila Garrity, whose name I cannot remember as an actress. Her name, oh, fuck. Her name is Autumn. I hated it. But her name is Autumn. And he goes, you know, we're getting the voiceover about how he's learned that fate is not actually a thing, whatever, whatever. And then he interrupts the voiceover through his actions to go back and actually introduce himself to her. Because, like, he now realizes that you actually have to show up for some of this stuff. And, like, I like that. I hate that her name is Autumn. I kind of love that her name is Autumn because it's so dumb that it like comes back around and it becomes amazing for me. It really, it felt on that level, it felt like the fucking, what's, it felt like the Edward the Vampire movie where he gets 9-11'd at the end. Oh no. Uh, yeah, I know which one you mean. It's That's what it's called. <laughs> yeah, it feels, the movie is called Edward the Vampire Gets 9-11 at the End. It's called something really generic like Remember Me or something. Yeah, I think that's exactly what it's called. And I am convinced that this movie was banking on the idea because it opens, I watched this, I watched this like pirated on the internet because I had a crush on Robert Pattinson, but of I course. didn't want to spend at the time nine dollars on it well he's not getting the money who cares you know exactly <laughs> i'm so excited for all the weird stuff he's gonna do like i'm probably not gonna watch most of his movies because i just don't care that much but whenever i see him being an absolute menace in something i'm like good for him good yes. for that kid agreed he turned out good kristen stewart too yeah she's the best i mean it's really it's a testament to like how if you cast weirdos they're gonna do a lot of your work for <laughs> you and that was good casting but that movie opens with a flashback of like 1991 a sad thing happens 10 years later and I think that the screenwriters banked correctly on the idea that most audiences in 2011 would see 1991 and then 10 years later and think, yeah, the present day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. If you guys don't know what we're talking about, look up Remember Me ending and then you'll 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 be shocked. Yeah. And it's also like, I think in 2011, trigger warnings were this very fringy idea that you kind of only heard about on college campuses. Like this was not a phrase that had quite leapt into the mainstream yet. Um, and I'm so glad it did. And I'm sure that statistically there were people who went to see this movie who had survived September 11th yeah. and didn't realize that that was what the ending was until they were watching it. Because there are still people who are surprised by the fact that this is the ending of the movie. So I'm <sighs> sure there were people who went and were like, oh, shit. Yeah. Yeah. 
So this is better than that. (laughs) (laughs) What does this stir in you negatively? (laughs) Okay. I would like to show exhibit A to the jury. So the first thing we see in this movie, title card, author's note, the following is a work of fiction. Any resemblance to persons living or dead is purely coincidental. Especially you, Jenny Beckman. Oh. Bitch. Oh, yeah. That's the opening beat of the movie. I didn't look at the first part and all I saw was bitch. That's the first thing that I saw and then had to go back and I was like, that didn't make it better. No. When you saw the word by itself, it's like maybe that's the mononym of a cool new recording artist who's in this film. No. I was like, somehow that's okay. No, that (sighs) is a real fucking choice. Well, and it just makes you think about how, because this movie is now 15 years old, roughly, how it was really a permissible choice to open a movie about like a nice soft rom-com guy this way. And I think now we recognize that that's like, look, like everything exists on a spectrum. I'm not going to say that calling your ex-girlfriend a bitch is by itself violent behavior, but does it sometimes accompany violent behavior? Yeah, it does. Often. And also you can't be verbally abusive to people anyway. This is a movie where it's extremely evident to me that he is not the hero of the movie. Mm -hmm. And I think the movie does know that, but it's still very open to, you know, interpretation. Right. And I, and I can see putting, I can't, I would never have phrased it like that, but I can see putting that opening line being sort of like a cell phone and joke being like, once you get through this movie, you'll know that like, if you're whatever, like I'm an idiot like this guy. That's as close as I can get to understanding that decision. But like the issue is, I think like many people who saw this at 20, 23, like not not unlike Scott Pilgrim. Yeah. Many people who saw it, I imagine sympathized with the wrong person, even after sitting through the ending of it. Scott Pilgrim is a lot more sympathetic because he lives with... Uh, Kieran? But yeah, the littlest Roy. <laughs> he does live with the littlest Roy. I just, I, I want, yeah, I, I wonder how many people, especially at Tumblr time left this movie confused about who they were supposed to sympathize with. I think now it's maybe a little bit more mortifying than it used to be to be a woman in her early twenties, openly confessing to wanting, you know, an alt rock boyfriend. (laughs) Well, it's like we hadn't, gotten at least a hundred if not a thousand social media uh note app apologies by that point yes right we hadn't seen the inner workings of the nice guy we still had plausible deniability on that front and it's not clear to me whether this is the person's actual name like i looked it up and got sources being like yeah it is but i don't know how much i trust that like if it i feel like there would be like a cut interview with her by this point um if there was a a real jenny beckman who this is based on but it's just like it feels based on the basic and very heteronormative premise that as far as men are concerned women are a mysterious and unknowable entity and it's like no you can know us you just we just have to talk about things and then you'll understand probably (laughs) here's my question as someone who's coming to this movie now that it's fully cooled yeah what is it like i feel like this is a movie that like if it wasn't a pop culture phenomenon it's like of a time people know what it is the name kind of summons this time capsule people tend to have somewhat strong opinions about it why did this movie pop the way that it did I don't know. I do think for a lot of things that fall flat or feel like this is an intro class to the things that we know now, I do think it was like cute, like all of their 
not like esoteric pop culture, but like all of the all of the things that they like that are not sort of immediate. Like she likes she likes Ringo. Ringo's her favorite Beatle. She likes Belle and Sebastian. Like everything she likes that's quote edgy is still extremely palatable. So the barrier of entry to get into those things was not difficult. Like it was not hard or outlying to know about Joy Division or the Smiths. Like these were things that were like slightly left field. That's such a crazy scene too, because he's like, you like the Smiths. And it's like, everybody likes the Smiths, especially if they're Mexican. And that that feels like, uh, that (laughs) that feels a lot like, you know, Garden State. Yeah. Another movie we should discuss. I'm sure we will. And it'll be very disappointing to many people. But I think like, it's a celebration of quirk, but none of the quirk is scary. So I think that that is a big thing. It's all like kind of accessible. I do like that. And I do think it probably resonated with people to like watch a movie that wasn't a happily ever after movie, but also had some of the sort of like positive elements in it. And people at this time in particular really liked when a child said something like pussy in a way that made me feel very uncomfortable. Yeah. That was a thing, wasn't it? Yeah. Having a kid say something that was like, quote, edgy, but was actually just kind of an inappropriate situation to put a child in. People really enjoyed that in their culture. (laughs) I choose to believe that Chloe Grace Moretz's character is actually like a 45 year old law professor (laughs) at UCLA, but she has that Andy Milianakis thing. I like that much better. Milianakis. Yeah. Milianakis. One of my (laughs) early internet friends. Yeah, I do feel like... You know, because one of the things people bring up as criticism of rom-coms, quite justly, although I wouldn't single out rom-coms, you know, because they are part of a culture, uh, is that they enable and excuse and encourage a lot of toxic behavior and a lot of, you know, a lot of the aspects of romance, as we've learned it, especially in American society, that teach us to expect less and ignore more. (laughs) So it feels like this movie fits actually really well into that because it's about like, you know what, like you shouldn't save every relationship. Right. And like, you might like have the feeling that like, this is the one at first and then that won't end up being true. Right. And I, and I do like, you know, again, like I know from my life that he is not a hero and, and he does a lot of things that it doesn't reward. Like he throws the punch and he's not a hero. He's not accepted as a hero for throwing the punch because it was like really about him. And that in almost any other movie, it would have been like the heroic moment. And I, I like that it does, even though it's like, yeah, I would love, I, there, there is a piece of me that would love to punch a fucking obtuse finance guy, but I have spent a lot of my life becoming not the person who decides that that actually needs to happen. Mm -hmm. And this is about the person who has not decided that stuff yet. And like what their life looks like as a result. It looks like a person who has a breakdown at a card slogan pitch meeting, which is very funny. (laughs) Yeah, I do love that. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, it's also, there aren't that many rom-coms that are from a male perspective, which is what I would call this. Like, I can't even think of anything else right now. Yeah, that's a really great point. I had not considered that either. Like, the only thing I can think of that maybe fits, and I don't even know because I saw part of it on Wii 20 years ago, is the Hugh Grant movie Nine Months. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I love Nine Months. I don't know if it's going to come out this month, but we are going to watch Mallrats. And Mallrats is a romantic comedy in that the arc is to like, quote, get and keep the girl. And the actual romance that takes place is between two male friends that hang out at the mall together. (laughs) 
I love that. You know, like, like uh, again, I, t- I talk about this all the time, like Tremors. Yes. Romances between the guys. Like your favorite rom-com Tremors. My favorite rom-com Tremors. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I think that there's that. And just like, again, like I, I'm not saying like palatable quirk in necessarily a dismissive way. Although I would have said that at this time, because I would have, I would have pitched like a hundred better things to put in here to have some indie credibility. But the, um, it is nice to see a movie that's colored with not the same pop ephemera that is in everything else Mm -hmm. that feels nice and that can resonate, especially when you're, you know, 17 to 22 and don't know everything yet, Mm -hmm. you know, and you're like, that's a thing that I do kind of know about. And I like that they nodded at it. And like, we both know the same kind of thing. Juno does that too. Still haven't seen Juno. Too many people told me to watch it when it came out 18 years ago. So I'm shocked that no one has pitched it for this show. Has no one? Wow. It's never come up. Although I love, I just saw for the first time in Halloween times, I saw Jennifer's Body for the first time, which is a Diablo Cody written movie. And I had just such a grand fondness for her voice. And Mm -hmm. I think that she got dismissed pretty hard for having a style. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... I will echo all other (laughs) smart people and say that Jennifer's body is a criminally underappreciated treasure. (laughs) Right. Do you agree? Oh, it was. It's perfect. And that came out at about this time, right? That was like 2008, 2009. I think it's partially why my brain is there. It's this. It's very this time. And that really says a lot about where we were, that we were like Megan Fox was like too much for us to deal with because couldn't handle her. I think it also it that movie in particular dealt with the thing where it they just didn't know how to market it. Not at all. They didn't realize that gay teenage girls existed because that's obviously (laughs) they didn't realize that gays existed because that's who that movie was and is for. Right. But they forgot. They forgot about the gays. Yeah. It's true. To their own detriment. Yeah, as ever. Um okay. Alex, here's what I would like to ask for you. Okay. Please construct for me an outline of your ideal rom-com for the year of our Lord 2024. Like, what does society need? What do you want? You don't have to give society what it needs unless you want to do that. Who should be in it? So I used to work at what we jokingly but also seriously called the hipster mall in portland maine yeah that was a great place yeah it was like there were two floors upstairs indie bookstore comic shop downstairs there was anthony's italian kitchen that also had dinner theater at night a video rental store and bull moose music that was like a record store and and the bull moose still exists you can still buy a lot of physical media bull moose um which is great mine would be a period piece because i just know my youth And it would be from that time and it would be more of a slacker like or days to confused like look at the various kind of relationships that are going on, but has a little more focus than on the other ones of a love between someone who works at the bookstore and who works at the record store. It would bank on nostalgia. It would be very cute. It would be very small. And, uh, you know, we might not even have a happily ever after. We just have a it was nice while it lasted. Everybody grows. Yes. Yeah. And you. Hmm. Okay. One summer in the life of a Shakespeare troupe. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. What would the energy be? It would be like Empire Records. Yeah. That's amazing. Like Empire Records or fame a little bit. And it's like 
I guess I'm like borrowing a little bit from my favorite Canadian sitcom, Slings and Arrows, which my mom and I have watched in its entirety four times, <laughs> where we, we can have like the apprentice program with the younger actors who will be like whoever people like right now. Who's the lady who plays Regina George in the new Mean Girls? I just don't know. Yeah, but you know, her. her. <laughs> her that one and some guy i don't care and then there can be like the older members of the troupe and they're like and it's like they're putting on as you like it or something i can't is there like a big as you like it adaptation that's like a teen comedy the way that get over it is i don't know not that i've ever heard of yeah and like lots of Queer couples. Of course. Like a one crazy summer trying to put on the show. <laughs> and if I if I have to pick one more person to put in it. Oh, well, we can just have <laughs> Patrick Stewart somewhere okay. in there. <laughs> Great. He's like the whatever. He's shows up in the last part. He's like an administrator or something. What if he's like not the director, but like the stage effects guy, like some kind of yeah. old school Shakespearean what's it. And I guess in my ideal rom-com, because like the thing that I feel like there's next to no narrative about is like once you are in a relationship, what then? Which actually is something that this movie really has going for it, because so many rom-coms by definition are people trying to get together and then they get together in the last 40 seconds of the movie and then we play like you know, a song by Joe Cocker and Jennifer Warrens or whatever. I think like the really interesting thing, because I agree, I mean, like we don't, it's like usually the the quote win is they get together and then you're, it's left to your imagination about what happens. There's classically the best version of that is say anything mm. where we just know that they go on their flight together and we don't know sort of where they land or what ends up happening. And what I, what I find interesting is a movie about people who are already in relationships and like what it looks like when one of or both of them have to grow incongruently. Did you know that in the extended version of the Cheers theme song, you know? Yeah. Sometimes you want to go, go where, where everybody knows your name. And they're always glad you came. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's great. You it's a great song. <laughs> People, the troubles are all the same. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and somewhere in like the version of it that's too long to play in the show where they're listing troubles, one of them is, and your husband wants to be a girl where everybody knows you. No. Name. Yeah. No, that's in there. Oh, I had no idea. Which is like, you know, you assume that any kind of 80s sitcom handling of that would be really horrible and transphobic. But it does bring up the question, when are we going to see more rom-coms about couples where a member transitions? Yeah, totally. That's a rom-com. I love, I mean, maybe that was played for punchline or whatever, but like if there's no other commentary and they just say it, it's interesting that it was in there. <laughs> well, it's framed as something that's driving you to a bar. So, oh, okay, okay, you okay, know. Yeah. Th- great point. But at the same time, like I do, I feel like, yeah, media of the time is so awful that there is this very reasonable impulse to be like, hey, they're not talking about murdering anyone. Right, right. That's exactly right. Little known fact, because I don't know who would know this outside of the people who are present, about my graduating class. 
is um, everyone voted for the Cheers theme song to be our senior song. Why? Then Erica Kent, who is one of the best teachers I've ever had, a fabulous English teacher who's still out there doing it somewhere. We all voted for it. And she was like, are you guys serious? <laughs> like, is this really not even in like a shitty like adult way? She was like, mm-hmm. it was like, be serious. Like, this is what you want to do. Like, this is like, it's not even funny. Like, don't do this. And so we voted for Freebird instead. That's good too. I don't even remember if we had a graduating song. I remember at eighth grade graduation, we played Schools Out for Summer. That was pretty good. That's, that is a great one. It's a great one to sing together. Yeah. This is a daddyless universe, or this is a fatherless universe. It really is. That kid is. Living on her own and a beautiful craftsman. We know, in theory, she was fathered, <laughs> as was Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Or, or was she? Or did she come directly out of someone's navel? Yeah, we don't. We actually don't know that. But in theory, there's a father somewhere in this universe who, in this movie, uh, is the daddy. Uh, I'm going to say... Sorry, I'm just asking myself. Yeah. <laughs> who, Alex Steed? Who, Alex, is the daddy? Who is me? Um, I am going to say... That it is the card Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. guy. Ah, Clark Gregg, by the way, for people who are like, he has a name. Is that his real name? Yeah. He was on the new adventures of old Christine. He's Christine's ex. Amazing. I love him in this movie. He realizes that our protagonist is having a hard time, a difficult time. He calls him in. He pivots his assignment as a result. I think this could his his overall disposition and what he's turning in for cards could probably be grounds for firing by this point. But like he does not do that. And he tries to actually work with him in order to give him an opportunity to put his heartbreak into a good place. And even that doesn't work because our protagonist is his own worst enemy for a good stretch of this movie. But there is someone who was in his corner and tried to help do the right thing. And I think that that was lovely. Yeah. Yeah. And you. While we're on the subject of the greeting card aspect of this film, I would love to point out that a card with a nuclear family involving lesbian moms is pointed to as an example of the death of the nuclear family, which is very stupid. But that's not any of these actors fault, probably. So yeah, the daddy to me is, uh, is summer because watching this at this age, it, I see it, I think just a, more clearly than I used to, or I just find it very easy to identify with her as somebody who like just got to town, came to try and, you know, seek her fortune and find a more exciting life immediately gets locked down by this guy and is like, trying to get out from under a duvet great beautifully said (laughs) nothing against the duvet you're just like all right i have things to do (laughs) 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 well happy valentine's month Uh, we've got a lot of movies meditating on how fucked up being in love can be (laughs) yeah it's our month of love stories i was like alex can we do a month of love stories and you were like yeah And we're doing it. Next week, we have Brokeback Mountain. I'm so excited. All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Thank you to Miranda Zickler for producing and editing the episode. Thank you to Fresh Lesh for providing the beats that make our episode sound so sweet. 
thank you for supporting us on Patreon and Apple podcast subscriptions. We appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to Alyssa and Afrio for making uh, videos that we use on our social media platforms to let y'all know sort of what we're up to and what we're talking about. Find us on social media if that's the sort of thing uh, that you're interested in doing. <laughs> and join us next week where our Valentine's Day episode will be Brokeback Mountain with Sam Sanders. It's going to be a fantastic time. All right, y'all, that's it from me. Don't forget that you, my friend, are good. <laughs> <laughs>